Hello, everyone. I'm Lee. I'm Spencer. And this is the Lasso Lowdown. We're going to lowdown on all things Ted Lasso. We are doing an episode-by-episode episode review of the Apple Plus TV series Ted Lasso. We are on the back end, firmly in the back end of season one. At this point, <laughs> we are in episode eight, a title. I'm, gonna, I'm saying it, Spencer, right from mm-hmm. the jump. My, first hot take of the episode, my favorite title of any episode so far, The Diamond Dogs. They use the title on this beautifully. I mean, we get several references to make it relevant within the episode, and then we end with the song. Expertly done this time around. I have no complaints about this title choice. It's a it's a top-tier title here, uh, Diamond Dogs, and definitely a group I want to be a part of. But I'll get into that as we get into the episode. First, a little housekeeping here. We are a little late in getting this episode to you. We like this podcast to be funny. Fun, funny, and entertaining. And um, I actually lost somebody in my family this week, and that is not fun, funny, or entertaining. Um, but it is the truth. So I figured I would level with you guys as to what was going on with us and why we were late with the podcast. Did it have a death in the family? But um, I have sort of done what I needed to do for that. I've got a little bit of time here, and I am absolutely looking forward to talking to you about this episode, Spencer. But anyway, we just want to apologize for the podcast being late, but that's the reason why it's late. But The good news is we are committed, as we have said many times on this podcast, we are committed to getting through season one before season two debuts. We are on episode eight now. We have nine and ten to do. You will see those in your podcast feed this week in preparation for our live, I say live, season two coverage where you will get episodes on Friday. So starting July 23rd, you're going to get new episodes from Ted Lasso on the Apple Plus um, platform on Friday, and then you will get a podcast from us on either Saturday or Sunday. So we will be reviewing season two week by week with you. But in the lead up to that, we're going to finish out our coverage. Season one, we start now with episode eight, Diamond Dogs. Spencer, any anything you want to say about the episode before we get into our segments? In, it's a very solid episode, but in many ways, it's most most of a setup episode. It's setting up some very key things that are happening for the last two episodes of this season that have to go through to, to resolve the arc that we're on. But as it stands on its own, very solid, really kind of summarizes where a lot of the relationships have developed to be, including some of the most, I think, effective portrayals of adult relationships I've seen on TV in a long time. And that's rare to see. There's actually some healthy relationships going on here. I uh, healthy human interactions for the for Ted Lasso. I'm so used to adults being portrayed as abject children, or just never a brother of having emotionally progressed beyond teenage years when they're having a relationship with each other. And this show doesn't do that. Even with some of the relationships that have now you know effectively failed, they're still portrayed in a very you know human mature light. Absolutely. Before we get into our segments, I do want to point out we have a little bit of news on Ted Lasso, Spencer. If you uh, you've been following just your major your major news platforms, your CNNs, your MSNBCs, even your Foxes, uh, you probably saw Ted Lasso was in the news this week. Why, Spencer? Because I believe they were nominated for 147 Emmys, which is an all-time record. Pretty impressive. Uh, you are correct about the record for a freshman comedy show. Don't think it was 147. I think it might have been a certain fraction of that number. 30, right? It was actually 30. I I think, okay, now now you're confusing me. I thought it was 21. Yeah, I don't know what it was. It was a lot. Uh, Spencer's going to look it up. But um, they did have the most Emmy nominations for any freshman comedy. So first season of a comedy, right? And that includes some powerhouses that we've had recently, right? Um, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, Office, community there has been some media darlings um and critical darlings that have come out in the past about 10 to 15 years and this show 
worked them all, Spencer. Beat them up. How it, many was it, Spencer? It was 20, and it's telling how successful this is for Apple that it Apple as an entire, I'll say network now, got 35 nominations. 20 of them were from Ted Lasso. Well, I do feel a bit vindicated because how many times on this podcast have I said, you know what, they're going to win some Emmys because, or roll the Emmy out now. I have probably talked about this show getting Emmys four or five times on our seven episodes so far. Vindicated, I say, with the 20 nominations for Ted Lasso this year. I'm going to be very abused if we go actually to the Emmys and it doesn't win a single one of them. I will delight in what your reaction will be. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. It is a it is a critical darling. Now, I will say this uh, about the 20 um, nominations. I'm happy. I like Ted Lasso. I mean, you enjoy this show immensely. I think it's a very good show. I do think the fact that it got 20 nods might be telling of the competition that we have right now. Because we don't have a lot of really good sitcoms that are out there. I mean, what do we have? We have like Kim's Convenience. We've got this. It's not a lot. It really isn't. And Kim's Convenience had the misfortune of getting some very negative press from its own actors as it was coming out, which I think diluted a lot of its fire going into the season. And people didn't like the ending. But, I mean, hey, you know, look, I'm the guy that liked Game of Thrones Season 8. I love the ending. (laughs) I have no complaints about Kim's Convenience. But I I will say that the 20 nods to me seemed maybe a little high. They're probably going to win upwards of 10, would be my guess. That still seems... I'm not I'm not saying the show doesn't deserve any nods. I'm just saying that we probably don't have a lot of competition right now. That's the only it's point fair. I'm trying to make, Spencer. It's not fair. Trying to dog, not trying to dog Ted Lasso. But anyway, 20 nods. That's why Ted Lasso is in the news this week. I think we should jump into our segments. Let's do a little recap here of the segments. We start with Biscuits with the Boss and Tea Time with Lee. That gets us started. Then we jump into the recap. That's right. The recap that Spencer leads. Spencer is our recap guy on the Lasso Lowdown. He valiantly valiantly pushes through the recap every week and then we go to our uh train wreck of the episode sports center top 10 where we have 10 only 10 10 on the nose every single week things that we have noticed about the episode and then we end on a very good positive uplifting note and that is ted's life lessons of the week spencer i think we should jump into tea time with the boss what do you have for us this week Uh, for biscuits with the boss uh, I oh, have yeah, biscuits with the boss. I'm blending. I'm blending our uh, our segments here. Biscuits with the boss. I have a demonstration of how Florida can be disastrous for certain forms of dessert. Of where I made myself a little bowl of ice cream. When we started, and even inside my house, it is now a puddle. So I have a what is essentially a soup bowl of heavenly hash ice cream that I'm going to be debating how to consume as we go through this episode. Spencer has a cup of cream that he's going to drink. <laughs> Um, uh, it will be tasty, I'm sure, just not exactly the consistency I was aiming for when I got this prepared. Folks out there, uh, our listeners, this is Spencer saying I spent too long on the intro. <laughs> this is what that is. I didn't want to put it in those <laughs> words, and I'm so appreciative the ice cream was here for me to express that thought. You went so long, my ice cream melted. Uh, okay, well, uh, my tea is probably cold, but I will, uh, I'll tell the, the folks what our tea is this week. Doing something a little different this week, Spencer. I like to whoop. I like to swerve you on the tea time with Lee from time to time, right? Because I mm-hmm, one time mm-hmm. I did a rooibos tea from South Africa, not even a real tea. Then I did you a little green tea action, letting everybody know that green tea was actually a part of traditional tea time in uh, Great Britain in the 19th century. Now I'm going with a heavily marketed blended tea. This is a really? yeah. This is a like a uh, a trademarked proprietary tea that has come out. That is uh, basically an advertisement. It's a, it's a, the, the whole packaging, everything is just an advertisement. 
And it's not even a, a type of particular tea leaf. It's a blend. What is this but, thing? But I was so impressed with it, I wanted to, sh- to share it with you guys. And you can get it. It's uh, offered by the Republic of Tea. So you can go to republicoftea.com and you can get this. Um, it is the Downton Abbey branded <laughs> tea called Mrs. Padmore's Pudding Tea. Now, me and my wife, longtime aficionados of Downton Abbey. We love that show. Might, might be a good podcast at some point to do a little bit of a, a review on the Downton Abbey. I love it, especially season two, season three, Matthew Mary. Ooh, breaks my heart. So I'm such a fan that people have bought this tea for me, this, this Downton Abbey branded tea. I threw it in my tea cabinet. I forgot about it. I pulled this one out, and I was kind of blown away. It's really good. Really? It's called Mrs. Padmore's Pudding Tea. It's black tea, traditional uh, British black tea, that, that sort of like unctuous, dark mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, breakfast tea type thing, that caffeine that Spencer likes so much. And it's mixed Need. with caramel, caramel and vanilla, which really brightens it and lightens it, I would say. It is perfect tea for a dessert. So I've done a lot of like standalone tea time teas so far. This is a really good one if you uh, if you got maybe a, a bowl of melted ice cream, uh, or a lemon bar, or a cannoli, or whatever Spencer may have. Uh, this is a great tea to have with dessert. So that's it on the Republic of Tea. It's a Downton Abbey branded tea. It's called Mrs. Padmore's Pudding Tea, Black Tea with Caramel and Vanilla. That's what I got for you this week. I feel like these two initial segments we always do just really embody what you and I bring to this podcast of where you bring well-researched, well-thought-out advice to our listeners so they can improve their overall quality of life. I bring dessert that I'm going to eat. Between these, (laughs) we just summarize what we have to bring to bear. Yeah, that's about right. But, you know, around here we have a saying, Spencer, Spencer's a talent. You don't don't bother the talent. Yes, yes, yes. Talent gets ice cream, talent enjoys ice cream, talent is happy to continue on. And, and that is the way it goes here on the Lasso Lowdown. All right, Spencer, I think we've got our opening segments out of the way. You have your bowl of cream. I've got my tea. I think it's time to jump into the recap here of Episode 8, Diamond Dogs. Take it away, Spencer. Uh, the episode opens with Nate, beautiful angel man that he is, asleep him. underneath the bus. Now intentionally, apparently. In his hung, incredibly hungover state, he was able to think well enough that I don't want to be left behind. How can I not be left behind? I will climb under the bus into the luggage compartment, therefore I will not be left behind. That is a certain measure of drug logic, but you can't fault him on it. He's doing a lot better in that regard than I would. I don't know. This move reminded me of you a little bit, because we've had some some nights where we've we've had a few alcoholic beverages, and uh, you just sort of like curl up, little angel that you are, on some couch somewhere. You never are you never no. a pain in the ass for a bed or whatever. A little bit of Nate in you. That's what I gotta say. Uh, there have been times where I'm pretty sure I've curled up next to Emerson, just in the exact same posture in the middle of the carpet, and I've been perfectly happy. Emerson's my dog, by the way. Everyone <laughs> understands. <laughs> Uh, one thing I love, though, is the team is really happy to see him. They call over yeah. other people as if there has been a coalition of people out there actively searching for where Nate is. This was a five-alarm moment, and they are overjoyed to find him, little beautiful angel man, curled up underneath the bus. He's not in the best of state. This is a man who remains hungover for, like, the full day afterwards, because he spends most of this episode vomiting in various forms on various things. We go from him to Rebecca in her own hotel room, debating taking the walk of shame before she remembers, oh wait, I'm in my own hotel room, and promptly kicks out the waiter. Power move. Oi, get out! (laughs) He startles, he wakes, he leaves. A pleasant evening for her. 
Meanwhile, Ted is very wide awake in his own room. In fact, he has been wide awake for three hours at this point, just kind of looming vaguely overflowed, debating his own life decisions, as she's very much content and cozy in his bed. Uh, got gotta say here, gotta say, little, little creepy that Ted's just sitting by the bed staring at her when she wakes up. Flo, pro that she is, handles it with no problem. I thought it was a creepy move on Ted's part. Flo understands what Ted's going through better than Ted himself understands what Ted's going through right now. Uh, as shown by some later scenes of where Ted clearly is just utterly disconcerted by what events transpired yesterday evening. He arranged for coffee. He arranged a late checkout. He then seemingly sat down for two and a half hours and just kind of stared vaguely over her. As you say, a little creepy. She rolls with it. And she thanks him kind for these things and tends to go back to sleep and order a massive amount of room service on his tab and just kind of thanks him for a pleasant evening. As Ted walks out with just a look of, dear lord, what happened to be printed on his face. Also making Fletch references, which I vaguely got, but kudos to him for making them. The bus arrives back home. Well, wait a second. Then yep. we cut to credits. We cut yes. to credits. I, uh, in a previous episode, I um, identified the longest intro, the longest cold intro. It's, it's, called, it's called a cold opening when you when you do an opening of a show mm-hmm. um, uh, before you do the credits. Uh, a little inside baseball for everybody. I'm a professional. Not, 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 not a big deal over here. Um, I have talked about before the episode where it was the longest. I think it was upwards of almost five minutes. Mm-hmm. The cold opening was, was like four minutes and 40 seconds or something like that. This is actually the shortest one of the season. It's two minutes and 30 seconds before we get to the credits. Did not, there you go. Did not know that. Probably would have lost money on that, too. The bus arrives back home. Nate immediately runs off to throw up. And How many times does Nate throw up this episode? So oh, I, I think I counted four. At least. And it's, it's hard to even tell because there's a certain point of where he's just like a bucket kind of almost glued to him, given how much he just carries it around with him. So any number of times that he's off camera, he may also be throwing up. It's a rough I love day. Nate. I love Nate, but I, you know, I don't, I don't drink anymore. But in my drinking days, I hated the guy who couldn't deal with a hangover. I really couldn't stand that. <laughs> I, I know Nate had a lot to drink, but I, I don't know that many people that just are that continually drunk, hungover the entire day afterwards. That's just not, not been my experience. Nope. Uh, Beard immediately gravitates over to his good friend Ted and he's clearly a little bit concerned about him because Ted did not say a word for five hours, which is a five-hour record for Ted, apparently. This is a very concerning moment. Beard asks him... That would terrify me if he just sat there quiet. Oh, God. At that point, you're just wondering, what does he know and what's going to happen to the rest of us? Because that can be the only explanation. Bad news. Uh... Ted kind of pulls Beard over for the, I don't want to talk about this, but I got to tell you about it. I don't want to discuss it. I don't want to go into any more detail about it. And reveals that he hooked up with Flo, with Sassy, if you want to call her such. (laughs) Beard immediately says, want to talk about it? Ted drops everything he said and says, yes. And they go off immediately to discuss. Yes, immediately. Yeah, I'd love to. (laughs) You know what? I thought when, (laughs) I love the writing of this show so much, because I thought that, um, Beard was being a wise guy. I thought he was like just just fucking with him, right? When he's like, "You want to talk about it?" And I thought the response back from Ted was sarcastic, like, "Yeah, yeah, sure." Like, I, you know, obviously I don't. I just told you. You know, I thought they were doing a like sort of sarcastic thing, a bit. and then they launch into this like ten minutes of just chatting about it. So no, obviously that was very earnest at the end. This is Beard just knowing Ted is his old friend very well. Just knowing, no matter what he says, this is what he needs right now. He'll come around to it. 
Uh, meanwhile, Keeley is checking in on Roy in the now thoroughly unhaunted treatment room. Uh, while Roy's worked on by Gail and her nonstop series of murder podcasts. I thought this I know, was haunted. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we fixed it. Uh, we so, I think he says, very British, I think he says, we sorted that. Question, by the way. Uh, how yeah. many female friends do you have or know that are also just nonstop into murder shows and murder podcasts? Because it feels like it's a lot of people nowadays. My wife certainly went through one of those phases. Um, I would say that of the women that I know, they're po- I know well enough to know their podcast listening habits, um, which, by the way, I hope they're all listening to MangumTalks.com. You get all our podcasts at MangumTalks.com or search MangumTalks on any podcast platform that you're on. I think it's upwards of like 75% of the women I know, I know. listen to this stuff. It's super popular, man. It is co-working. Maybe we should be friends. doing like murder mysteries. <laughs> Don't, don't get too many good ideas, sir. We don't need that kind of popularity. Uh, that would require a lot of work. Those things seem exhausting. <laughs> uh, Keely, checking in on him. He advised her not to worry about Gail because she has nothing but murder podcasts in her brain. And she says, you know, we had a great day. It was sloppy, but we had fun. Um, how about you in the mood for coffee so we can deal with our hangovers? He immediately, from her perspective, dodges it and just kind of brushes her off. Just says, you know, I'm busy. And doesn't, and then probably kind of just kicks her out of the room saying, you know, I don't really want you to hear my uh, noises that I make when she starts to massage my hamstrings, which are very high pitched as we find out here in a second. Keely walks away with a certain measure of, uh, how would you say, how would you summarize her emotion here? Confusion? Concern? What yeah. would you say? So, so I want to, I want to point out something about this, this sequence here is that um, it actually hurt my heart a little bit. This was the first time I think I've ever seen Keely address a male mm-hmm. and seem like she didn't have supreme confidence. I've, I've called her the master Yoda of talking to men in the past. This is like her facing the emperor, you know, in the galactic Senate floor. Like this is, she seemed shaky here. Um, and I actually like, I love Keely. So I was like, oh God, I hope, you know, I hope everything's okay. Um, it does seem as though uh, in this in this sequence that, that Roy brushes her off. Although I, I didn't buy it. Uh, no. I did not buy it. As we find out later, he isn't. He's just being purposefully vague. Roy. Yes. Uh, though it's an excellent read, as you said. She is very much not in control for the one of the first times we've seen her. And I think one of the things that's driving that is that she cares. So much the rest of the time she could just breeze through with just a polite indifference to the situation. This time she's invested. This time there could be consequences if somebody doesn't respond well to her. And it doesn't seem like she's used to that. Not at all. No, it's it's a tough it's a tough scene for Keely. I feel like she put herself out there, and I feel like um, Roy brushed her off. But I also recognized that we were six minutes into the episode, and there was no <laughs> way that we were going to end with that. The, the, more story to come. Uh, meanwhile, Ted, Beard, Nate, and Higgins, the proto Diamond Dogs, are grouping together, seemingly for the first time ish, prior meetings, uh, to discuss Ted and his decided discomfort with one night stands. Beard forces him to admit that he had fun. Nate confirms that she had fun too. And Higgins kind of drives through the problem of, what's the problem then? What would you say Ted summarizes as the problem here? Okay, maybe I just haven't come to peace that I went from a mental breakdown in a karaoke joint in Liverpool to sleeping with a woman I just met. It's somewhere in between there having a divorce. Very fair, Ted. Very fair. We understand the pain you're going through right now. 
Meanwhile, while Ted's kind of disconcerted and everybody else is supporting him, Nate is having the time of his life. He's apparently always wanted this kind of friend group to form together to discuss relationship problems. And... I must say, this is lovely. Since I was little, I always dreamed about sitting with a bunch of mates talking about complex dynamics with men and women. I, I went into the accent at the end of that. Apologies. I'll, I'll, I'll do the accent work. It wasn't bad. Time, but it I, was not bad. But I do enjoy that Nate... Nate does the thing that I appreciate in Friends, which is where he'll like break the fourth wall of the conversation and like comment yeah. on the conversation as you're having it. I really appreciate that about people. Yeah, and I think Ted really appreciates it too. It has a great way of letting a little bit of the air out of the room. Um, Ted brings up the idea that he really wants to tell Rebecca what happened, which everyone, me included, thinks, really bad idea. Don't do that. Well, uh, I have a question about this. Why do we think that's such a bad idea? Do we think Rebecca really is going to care? I don't know, and they don't know, and they're like, don't default to assuming that she should know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It just seemed to me that, like, Flo was such a, like, headstrong character that, like, any of her friends probably would default to, like, well, it's just Flo being Flo. I don't know if she'd have any problem with Flo doing it. She might be a problem with it being Ted, particularly given what things we yeah. actually know about what her relationships or thoughts on Ted are. Yeah, that those two uh, end up Roy by the end of season three. So you keep shipping. I'm so sorry I, I introduced you to the concept. Uh, meanwhile, Roy <laughs> is vaguely walking in, determines that they're talking about relationship shit, and promptly walks away with just a giant no and never returns to the relationship talks again until much later in the episode. And Higgins, who really is probably one of the more insightful people on the show, as it turns out, hammers through the shit and just says, you know, Ted, you're intent on going 12 rounds with yourself. Why? What do you think you did wrong? Setting up a delightful joke about Ted cutting himself some slack, which Ted's immediately appreciative of, and... Beard, Beard, having... I got the quote. Beard. Please. He's right. Time to get you some of these. Makes the scissor gesture. Scissor. What, Ted, what? Scissors? Nate, yeah. To cut yourself some slack. Nate, whoa! <laughs> Y'all stuck the landing on that one. <laughs> do, do, you, do you think they, like, you know, plan those things in their off time? Or are they just really that in sync to make that one work out so beautifully? I don't know. The one th but I just liked so much that it, like, it worked out. And then, like, Ted <laughs> immediately yeah. was like, wow, that was impressive. <laughs> hey, it's on, it's on point for Ted. Ted is a guy who nearly knocked a door off his hinges to congratulate Higgins for saying, Caesar, you later. The man yeah. always is there to compliment a quality joke or pun. Indeed. Uh, from this, they debate team names of the, what is now a relationship team that will have to meet again in the future and through Nate's suggestion the Diamond Dogs are formed. So the best suggestion here obviously is Diamond Dogs. The worst, categorically, I will give to Higgins, Proud Boys? <laughs> oh, he, yikes, he, had, he even had the expression <laughs> of his face of where he felt compelled to say it or think of something and immediately realized it was a horrible idea. So I'm with you there. Keely, meanwhile, is back at home alone at 12.55, uh, having, trying to text Roy to find out what's going on with, uh, no, actually, let me say this correctly. She texted him at 12.55 earlier on today. It's now evening, and she's never received a response. She is clearly pining for him. She's clearly confused. She's more than a little bit hurt. She doesn't know what's going on. And at this moment, her doorbell rings. And lo and behold, please. I just want to point out something a great consistency that the show did. If you look at Keeley's screen where she's texting, 
that the last time she texted Roy was that exchange that we covered a few episodes ago where she goes, you know, is my bladder's full? Is it okay if I pee? That, that texturing was the last thing that she actually te- texted him. And you can see it on the screen. And you see what his response was to that, which is we're, we're now getting the reveal, which was a face emoji with the, uh, like, cuss word, like, um, like, like, you know, like thing yeah. over the mouth. Yeah, the symbols <laughs> over the mouth. So what we got was that when she did that text to him, like, hey, can I use the bathroom? He just texted back basically like, I'm screaming at you. <laughs> that was their the last perfect exchange. He texted back her what he would have said in person. Perfectly done, Roy. Uh, yeah, it was really good. good. Life were you, consistency from the show. Were you expecting who was at the door? No. I, nor was I. Because lo and behold, Jamie from Manchester City, currently in town playing West Ham, is there because he has something to talk with Keely about. He They briefly discuss how he's doing with Man City and reveals that essentially he is no longer the big fish in the small pond. He's barely even getting playtime. He he did get a garbage goal. He did, which apparently gave him a half chub. Kudos. Uh, but otherwise, he's no longer the best on the team. He's not even on the primary team. He's a replacement. Rotate in. And it seems both that and Ted's advice and just a little bit of growing up and Keeley too, have clearly matured Jamie quite a bit, given the tenor of this conversation. He... Very much thinks, well, he's just here to talk, very much thinks that uh, Ted dumped him, or at least could have done something to stop it. But what he wants Keely to understand is that she always had a way of seeing the better him and wanted to make him better even still, make him cultured and take him to plays and shit, which he apparently found hilariously confusing. They make him feel emotional things and they're not very fond of him shouting questions during the performances. You cannot take this per- you cannot take this child anywhere, apparently. Um, he wants to really just tell her that her advice on that regard and also telling him to not get in his way so much, he appreciates it. He wants to thank her for it. She is very much earnestly surprised, tells him welcome, and in a true telling testament to how far this guy has come, he nods, he smiles, and he goes to leave. Which catches Keeley completely off guard. Yeah, we don't know this, Jamie, at all. I do want to point out one thing in this exchange, which you're covering beautifully, Spencer. Thank you for that. But the, earlier in the exchange, he says, when Ted got rid of me, and Keeley jumped in and goes, no, 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 Ted yes. didn't want to do that. And he goes, no, no, he could have stopped it if he wanted to. And Keeley takes note of that. Yeah. She, you can see her cock her head, and she takes note of, it seems like Jamie knows something about the way that transaction went down that it was optional for Richmond in a way that Keeley was previously unaware of. That becomes important later in the episode. Yeah, and it's true, as it turns out, too. He's got a pretty accurate read on things. Yeah. Though it was not Ted that really necessarily had the power, at least wasn't knowing that he had the power, really. Um, right. I said, Jamie, oh my God, how far he's come, is moving to leave. And Keeley feels the need to point it out. Like, this is the first time you've been here without sending me weird sex emojis, like egg- eggplants and squirting water and... The little squirrel with the nut, which Jamie has to explain. Um, she invites him. Has in anyone for- in the history, has anyone in the history of text messages ever sent an eggplant emoji and meant an eggplant? No, it doesn't serve any purpose other than to serve a stand-in for something more sexual. It is a, a euphemism of an emoji. I'm uh, going to make it a point to, to send you a text at some point. With an eggplant. Do you want some eggplant emoji parmesan? <laughs> 
please don't do that. It will fuck with my brain. We don't need that <laughs> happening. Uh, That's a way to mess with your guy friends out there. Uh, is send no, them, like, no. Say, what's for dinner? Send them eggplant emoji parmesan. That's that's one from Uncle Lee to the kids out there. Okay, okay, okay. I want all of our listeners to understand. When he goes into, you know, Ted's philosophical advice at the end of the episode, that's the actual life lessons. When Uncle Lee says anything before then, do not listen to him. Bad advice. <laughs> this is the other kind of Uncle Lee that you don't talk about as much. Uh, <laughs> when you don't invite to dinner. Exactly that one. Especially not for eggplant. Uh... Keely invites Jamie for a drink and child that he is immediately just goes no thanks and still moves to leave but luckily catches himself realizing oh do you mean a drink or and Keely kind of gives him the nod and the smile and he suddenly has one of those profound moments of realization of what wait is this how you get sex <laughs> Keely has to go like Sometimes, yes, and then kind of leads him by the hand upstairs. It's a so very... This is yeah. this is a weird... So, first off, it's odd that Jamie has to say, is this how you get sex? Because up until now, we have been just inundated with this, with all the evidence that, like, Jamie gets all the women that he wants, right? So it's kind of weird that he would say, is this how you get sex? When, like, we've just been shoveled the fact that he gets sex from anybody at any point, anytime he wants to, right? Maybe he just means just with Keely. I don't know. But the second part of this that I want to point out. Oh, you got got something on the first part. Go ahead. On the first part, I would basically say, I think he's probably coasted through life just being pretty. And so he's never really pondered the mechanics of how someone actually has a relationship connection with another person. And I think that's kind of what he needs here is that everyone's just kind of just jumped in his lap before. Here... He actually played a role in it, he feels, rather than just being the, you know, beatific picture that he is. Gotcha. So maybe it's like, this is how you work for it. Like, I'm learning how to actually work for it. I never have to work for it, usually, but this is how I work for it. The second part of that I would point out is that, you know, this might seem like a weird move by Kaylee here, right? Why is she sleeping with Jamie all of a sudden? They broke up. You know, she's kind of in this weird middle ground with Roy. Listen... It's easy to go back and hook up with the ex when you have no strings with anybody else. It's an easy thing to do. A lot of people do it. I'm just going to say give my girl Keely a pass here. I've seen many, many people break up with someone and then a couple months later, neither one of them are attached and they just do a one night hookup and it's totally fine. They know what they're doing and everybody moves on as adults. I think this is an acceptable move by Keely. I understand not everybody in the fandom is going to think so, but I give Keely a pass here. Spencer, what do you think? I think it's an acceptable move, but I also cannot to any degree blame Roy for feeling hurt in response to it. This is not an offense, but it like is a general category of relationship things to do because they're not in a relationship, as the Diamond Dogs point out later. But very pointedly, given the relationship Ooh. that, thank you, that Roy has with both Keely and Jamie, she knows that that would hurt him, hence why she apologizes a little bit later about it. So I think it's... They handle it beautifully with the two of them talking later, because that's all it really merits. But I think both of their feelings and actions are perfectly justified. I don't know. I think it's an acceptable move by Keeley. If I was Roy, I'd be weirded out. I don't know if I'd be mad. But anyway, I, I think, uh, you know, just checking the message boards and doing my internet research, because uh, you know, obviously podcast professional over here, a lot of the fandom did not like this move by Keeley, and I'm here to justify it. <laughs> Fine enough. We go back to Biscuits with the Boss, where Ted, this time, has brought not only his quintessential biscuits, he's also brought <laughs> chocolate truffles. 
I, I'm laughing because I love the little sandwich concept. That's such a that's such a like fat guy move that I do all the time. Like just mash it together. Let's make a sandwich. Let's get all the calories in us as fast as we can. I love also the timing of it too. Of where Ted's like he's going to reveal this concept to her at the same time as she's already made it and is already doing it. She's like I don't need it, yeah. you to tell me this. <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, he's doing this really as again a personal thank you. Is that you know I also I love her response. She always curses him whenever he brings these things in. Or you fucker, don't do this to me. Because they're too good. They're controlling her. Uh, he thanks her for sincerely for being there for him in Liverpool and says, basically, yeah. you've got a coupon for life. Compares himself to a metaphorical St. Bernard with metaphorical bourbon to bring to her whenever she needs it. And she, has immediate, she immediately has an idea of how she can use this favor. She apparently is meeting with the Milk Sisters, who are the perfect combination of both boring and talkative, who are minority or owners of the of, of Team Richmond. She is apparently obliged to meet with them at, I guess, a certain regular period, or maybe they invited her, I don't really remember. And she really needs Ted to be all kinds of Ted and kind of dilute her from that situation. Ted immediately determines that they own 2.9% of the team and says he's going to call them the 2% milks, to which her response is, oh God, they are going to adore you. Okay, so something we're going to do the rest of the episode. Um, I personally find Ted's puns on milk to be possibly the most entertaining thing of this entire season. Um, I'm here for it. I love it. And uh, the rest of the recap, I just want, uh, give me a little space. I want to jump in with each of them because I've written every single one of these milk puns down. (laughs) You know, I haven't really thought about it before, but in some ways the relationship that you and I have is in some ways Ted and Rebecca here uh, here, is that I can't stand (laughs) puns as far as I can throw them. And every time he said them, they hurt me a little inside. But I'll soldier through as you repeat them to me. (laughs) These are so good. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed them. My response was quite the opposite. Meanwhile, Keeley is in what make she uses as her office, the newsroom, uh, and is talking with three of the uh, t- members of the team concerning what endorsements they should consider. And she's of the belief that it's better if they believe in them. That way, their endorsement can feel much more legitimate. She goes through. Colin likes Air Jordans. Like, really likes Air Jordans. Like, might have sex with a pair of Air Jordans, kind of like for Air Jordans. Yeah, as do I, by the way. More on that in the Sports Center top ten. Um, I just would like to point out the um, how hypocritical Healy is here because she's like shilling shitty caffeinated vodka two episodes ago, and now she's like, "You got to believe in your product, guys." Uh, but yeah, Air Jordans, love Air Jordans. Um, yeah, more on that later. Okay, Sam. Meanwhile, likes issue-oriented products. Of course, Sam does. He's a delightful person. Just something you know, environment-focused or anti-pollution. Uh, also, Air Jordans. Meanwhile, Isaac <laughs> just really likes Rolos. And I love how Rolos. serious he is here, too. It's just like, this man is not joking in any fiber of his being. This is just stone-cold Rolos. Nothing but Rolos. Don't you okay. dare give me any Sour Patches. Rolos. Okay, so a couple questions here on this. Very important, obviously. One, Spencer, do you like Rolos? They're okay. I don't have that level of passion for them, but I like chocolate and I like caramel, so Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the level of passion is crazy, but I, you, you like Rolos, right? You're, yeah, you're, yeah, they're you're good. down with a Rolo. Okay. All I right, like, next like question. Like that um, Obviously, extremely important here. You're at the candy counter at your normal grocery store or pharmacy or just, you know, some place where all of the standard American candy is there. You're, you want a dessert. You want something sweet. What do you grab? What is your go-to American standard candy, either candy bar or candy product? 
Uh, would cookies be included in that category? Because you know my affection no. for cookies. Damn you no, to no, hell. No, no. Um, no famous Amos here. Mm-mm. I would, if, if I, I would, you know what I would do? I would get an assortment of chocolates. I actually love an assortment of chocolates. If I can just get like a little box of, uh, you know, uh, of fresh chocolates and all kinds of different little flavors, like Forrest Gump just enjoying them on a bench, I will be a very happy person. Okay, you can't get that either. I'm talking about like the... <laughs> I'm talking. You know what I'm talking about? Like he, 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 the, I'm at a concession stand in a movie theater. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's what I should have said the first time. Yeah. What do you What do you get? You know, one thing I really love back in the day. Well, I mean, Reese's are an obvious choice. Everybody freaking loves Reese's. God but, damn, uh, Reese's are so good. They're so good. But if you actually a literal candy bar, I'm sticking to a candy bar. You bastard. You know what I really like? A crunch bar. I really like crunch bars. I'm going with that. Wow. What a. Man, underdog choice here, Crunch Bar. I mean, that look, Crunch Bar is very good. It's just I, I don't hear a lot of people say it's their favorite. Uh, I'm going to say here, I, I'm not picking a candy bar. I'm saying a candy product, as you so eloquently put it, like you're, if you're at a movie theater, right? Remember yes. movie theaters, kids? The things we went to years and years <laughs> ago? Session stand. Those things. <laughs> Mine, number one, with a bullet, peanut M&Ms. I almost feel as oh, passionate about peanut good. M&Ms as this guy does about rollers. I love peanut M&Ms. They're my good Peanut are quite good, too. Uh, now that we've all learned something about each other here, uh, Roy comes in, yep. and everybody leaves. Team Captain Knockman's the room, uh, and promptly invites Keely out for dinner, which just gives her just full-on prompt whiplash, because she immediately is like, no, I need an explanation here. You've been avoiding me all the last day. What the hell's going on? And I adore their relationship so much because they're able to have these adult conversations where Roy just says, you know, I've had a million one-night stands. You, we were clearly about to have sex, and it was clearly about to fall in that light, and those all just kind of feel empty. You feel like shit afterwards. Well, not immediately afterwards, but longer term, you feel like shit, and you end up with your watch stolen and stories about how your penis has a curve in it, to which Keely is immediately intrigued and remains intrigued for the remainder of the episode. Uh, you have something to say there? Uh, standard stuff, obviously. Standard stuff for all of all of us one night stand guys out here. Lose your watch, uh, someone uh, vilifies your penis. These things happen, yes. But apparently, it's not actually his penis. It's the technique that he uses with his hips to give people the impression that his penis is a curve in it, which intrigues Keely even more. Mm. Back to that later. Yeah. Uh, he tells her basically plainly, "You're more important than that. I want to try to do things differently here, and I should have told you that right then and there." I'm sorry, and I'm trying to be more honest. Oh, I love these two so much. They're having the kind of relationship talk that nobody has in real life, it seems. Or at least they should be having more of. Keely immediately meets him on the same terms. And again, adults talking, lovely, and admits that she slept with Jamie. He, I love this, Roy says, I am, he says, yes, I am aware of that. You two were in a relationship. I could piece together you had sex. But, no, 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 Keely corrects. I mean last night. Claims that she didn't know what Roy wanted, and so... She knew what Jamie wanted. That was abundantly clear. Kinda. Again, Jamie was leaving. We know what Keeley wanted, and Jamie was perfectly happy to respond to. Different question. Uh, Roy says that, so you were getting back at me for something I didn't even know I did. Keeley... No, 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 yes, yes. That's, yep, that's, that's exactly what I did. I fucked up, Roy. I'm really sorry. But I need you to be okay with this. I... Well, lo- yeah. Why don't you come and tell me how you feel whenever you learn how to speak again? 
Because Roy just spends like the next, what, solid two minutes of this episode just growling. It's animalistic anger noises. That's all he's able to do. Just too angry even that's, to speak. That's what our boy Roy is doing, just grunting. I, I, again, such kudos to her for having the hard conversation now rather than trying to bury it. Any other sitcom, this would be a landmine they could have explode later from them being immature teenagers. But these are, this is not this show and these are not those people. Damn, Spencer just firing at friends with like barrels <laughs> cocked. Boy, you just went after friend's head right there. I, ooh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Great show. Love that show. Most frustrating aspect of that show is that that's every single relationship with that show. With one key exception. You're absolutely right. And, and for, you, that was such a great point. This this exact plot would be, they would just start to hook up, and you're 15 episodes later, it would happen, and then two seasons we have to do to get rid of, you know, to deal with it. Uh, that's exactly what Friends it, would be. Very, very astute point there, Spencer. It's lazy writing, so it lets you draw things out forever. It's like, no, this is not what this show's actually about. The relationship is delightful color to improve things. It's not going to be something we do a will-they-won't-they-for-eight-seasons-with. No unresolved sexual tension here. We're getting it done. Meanwhile... Most of the time when you make a point on this podcast, I'm, like, right there with you. This one was so good that it took me a little while to figure out exactly what, what you were doing, and then I had to then I had to restate it just for myself. I'm that was so a very good one, Spencer. I'm so glad you got, even got the show I was trying to say without saying. Bravo, sir. Uh, <laughs> very good. Roy, you, can, you know Roy is desperate. You know he's at kind of the end of his emotional rope. Where does he go... <laughs> immediately after this event happens. I can't believe it. He goes to Ted. He goes to Ted for advice. Clearly desperate. He still can't talk. He's still grunting. So uh, Ted does uh, Ted uh. does everything in his power just to get him to admit it by asking the worst guesses possible. I assume that's what Ted's doing. Who can say for sure with Ted? Including asking, uh, you've just realized your dad's a little bit racist, which Roy delightfully responds, stop it. He's in his 60s and he's from South London. Of course he's a little bit racist. Thank you, Roy, for just acknowledging it's okay to be a little bit racist. It's something that facts and factors in the background of things. Other actions can govern. But continuing on. Meanwhile, Man, translated no, to an American audience, that's uh, my dad's 60 and from Mississippi, right? Like that is exactly some shit you could say about the geographic area of the United States. These exactly things happen. So. They're just understood. Um, we also get comments on complicated shit. Uh, Roy basically cuts through it and says... He, can't, he wants to be in a relationship with Keeley. He can't get over the fact that Jamie and Keeley had a prior relationship and that it has recently kind of flared up again a little bit in his mind. Roy describes this as the most complicated shapes, the love triangle, just a step around uh, the other shape of just walked in on my mother-in-law changing in her two-year swimsuit, dodecahedron. Roy said, uh, Ted's had a very complicated relationship with his mother-in-law, apparently from what we've gotten on this show. Roy, in no mood for shape-based puns, just kind of shuts him down, so Ted invites in the Diamond Dogs, which, as Roy Ow. says, delightfully is his fucking nightmare. The room agrees that Roy and Keeley being together are just the best thing ever. Cookies and cream. Nate repeatedly describes Keeley in just almost angelic terms. But Roy just can't get Jamie out of his head. Ted sums up that Roy has his own sexual history that predates Keeley, but so does Keeley, and that's not okay. To which I absolutely adore that while he's saying this, and even when he finishes, Roy is just there next to him, aggressively nodding like, yeah, that's a perfect summary of what I'm going through. Thank you, Ted. With no degree of realization of sarcasm at all. Then you've got commentator Nate in the corner. Oh, he means the opposite. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sarcasm blind situation resolved. Roy basically says he can't control his feelings, to which Ted responds. Ted. 
Well, by all means, let them control you! Uh, completing our friend's references, Ted agrees to drop the Chandler binging, which I've never heard that expression before, but I'm going to use it. Very and good. Yep. Re reminds Roy, don't let her past get in the way of y'all's future. Delightful advice right there. Roy mm -hmm. focuses in on the fact, no, 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 you're not understanding this. She slept with Jamie last night. Now, I think the room should be a little bit more understanding of his feelings on this, but they do hammer through a lot of the shit and basically just ask him key questions. Were y'all together? Had you slept together yet? Beard, bring it on home. Get over it, G grow up, and get over it. Roy, as he always does when he hears good advice, curses them a little bit, leaves, and takes their advice. I love consistent charactering. The diamond dogs are struck again. Uh, I will say this. I think I think uh, you and I are a little bit different in our feelings about how Roy should feel about this situation. I just feel like when you're, when you're firmly in adulthood mm -hmm. um, and you are starting the early stages of dating until you lock it up until it becomes you know you, you actually say like okay we're gonna do this thing you kind of have to assume the person is still sleeping with other people like that's what, just that's just kind of the reality of it and so you're I, gonna you're gonna deal with situations where you've gone to coffee with someone you've gone to dinner with someone they're still sleeping with somebody else and until you lock it up that's just the, that's just what they're doing and you you might as well be doing the same thing i will 100 percent agree with you except who she slept with here who she slept with here, she knew would be a live wire for Roy. Hence why she felt the need to admit it to him right away. I don't think he would have cared if she slept with someone else. Jamie is the issue. But, as you said, they're adults. It's in the past. They work through it. She already apologized. That's all the conversation they really needed to have. He just needed time and perspective to come to those terms. Meanwhile. Good advice from the Diamond Dogs. Good advice. Absolutely. Meanwhile, we, I would say, start... Here's setting up with Ted and Rebecca arriving at the team pub. What I'd say is probably, the, in my mind, the single best overall scene in the entire series. The two of them at this pub and that scene playing out is probably my favorite moment in season one. Wow. Curious as to your thoughts. Does this rank highly for you? Uh, yeah, the, the entire sequence um, is incredible and it starts with the strongest of strong foots. Do you see the Milk Sisters anywhere? Do you want me to go skim the back room? D don't stop there. Just do the next three, please. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to be an utter gentleman. Hey, I wonder if you've ever seen the movie Bridget Jones's Dairy. Sorry, that's not my breast milk pun. <laughs> go, Ted. Go, Ted. Are you happy now? Are you glad that you just inflicted that upon me? Our audience can't <laughs> yes. see the full-on migraine I'm now suffering from as you just went through those, but oh. here we are. Oh, I dare you to keep going, Spencer. I am going to soldier on through. Um, oh, God, did you just say dare me? God damn you. <laughs> All right. I am in the same state as Rebecca, where she's just done, about ready to cancel things and just walk away. Unfortunately, someone interrupts, because Rupert is there at the bar <sighs> with, uh... new, with new Rebecca. Or just Rebecca, actually, if I remember the, remember the tabloids correctly. He introduces her as Bex. He reveals that the two of them are now engaged. Mm. He, flir he flirts with May behind the bars. He orders drinks, not only for himself, but the entire bar, as it turns out. And immediately, as he always does, commands the room and earns everyone's affection, as Rebecca is just left there kind of picking up her own emotional pieces. 
Uh, question, by the way. Uh, during your more drinking days, when how many times did you ever confront a situation of someone buying the bar? Because it's never actually happened to me. Um, I've done it. <laughs> I, I remember that. Surprise you. <laughs> I've done it. Uh, I think I've only been... I've done it twice, maybe, and I've been around it maybe two or three times. It is a pretty rare thing, and it typically is only going to happen in a small bar like this. I mean, um, I think one time I heard that Michael Jordan was at top of the hill in Chapel Hill and bought everybody around. Um, That's a full bar. uh, Yeah, and I don't know if that's like an urban legend or something, but I had heard that he did that. I mean, and that's like a two-story, like you could fit like 400 people in that thing. Uh, But usually it's got to be like a little small bar like this for sure. If it had happened to me, I would not have done what our trio of fans do, of immediately go up to the bar and buy boots of beer. That just feels like a bit of a douche move, not that Rupert cares. No. Um, we go back to Keeley in her office and is meeting no, with Danny. No, 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 Rupert, Rupert, uh, uh, Rebecca asked if the milk, where the milk sisters are. Oh, right, I left out that detail. Um, we have a situation of where Rupert has revealed that he effectively bought the Milk Sisters' interests. Well, well, first he, he says they won't be coming. Ted says, oh no, did they expire? So uh, I, I wasn't, I was joke. so <laughs> trying to force our I way through that one. There. I had to get to it. All right, go ahead. All right, I'm going to get out of the way now. <laughs> okay, you've had your fun. Uh, he basically fronted the money for Bex to buy out the Milk Sisters' interests so that she is now an owner. And he, given that they'll soon be married, will be an owner along with her, which apparently is not in violation of the terms by which he lost his ownership. And so he can attend as much as he wants, with Bex revealing that she thought she would pay off her student loans before she became a partial owner of the team. Oh, what a world we're in. And stop. Just stop. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Back to Keely and Danny. God, I wanted to get through that so bad. Okay. Keely asked Danny what he's interested in, uh, you know, endorsing and being a sponsor of. Uh, remind me, Lee, what does he say he would like to uh, endorse? Uh, joy, joy. Uh, uh, Danny, I don't think we really can, you know, market or sell joy. That's okay. I want to give it for free. <laughs> Cut through the bullshit. That's okay. Perfect. I want to give it out for free. I want to give joy for free. Uh, Keely doesn't really know what to do with this or Danny in general. Roy walks in, Danny walks away, just singing the way he always does wherever he goes. Football is life, Capitan. (laughs) Roy doesn't waste any time. Says, I'm done being mad about Janie. I'm a grown man, not a baby child. Well said. And he'd like to ask her out to dinner. Keely effectively just does a press interview as she goes to the various derivatives of Independent Woman. And it's many exceptional varieties. So charming. It's great. And ask him various questions about where they're going to go out to dinner and certain questions also about his hip movements, to which dinner they're able to, well, originally coffee, dinner they effectively agree on. Hip movements, the interview is over. Broy walks out. Everybody very happy with how events have transpired, including the audience. Here are the various publications that Keeley pretends that she's a partner of. Glad you wrote them down. What you got? Keeley Jones, Independent Woman. Keeley Jones, Independent Woman, Online Edition. Yep. Keely Jones, The Independent Woman Magazine. Yep. Keely Jones, The Independent Woman Sunday Insert. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday Insert was my favorite. That was a good one. Uh, back at the bar, everybody's celebrating Rupert's return and enjoying a certain bashing of Ted. Kind of. The three fans are really clearly now struggling with the idea of bashing Ted now that they know, now that they know him and he knows them and he actually knows their names. 
they were able to fight through it, including the one fan in particular. Rupert, Pretty cool, a Premier League gaffer knows our names. <laughs> uh, Rupert really starts to up the taunting, though. He just goes straight after Rebecca with the fact that he's going to be in the owner's box every week, telling the press what he thinks of their performance, and also basically accuses her of, you know, I knew she was Randy, but I didn't think she'd be willing to fuck over the whole team. Dear Lord, this is to the point that Ted can't even hear, can't really can't hear, actually I think he does that later one later, we'll come back to that one again later. Ted really can't hear any of this anymore and interrupts to say, hey, what's this uh, game? Darts, you guys like darts, right? You like as much as uh, that game that sounds like a box of cookies. Snooker. I love Rupert's confusion when it's tones like, snooker? Yes, that one. I'd like to curl up and listen to uh, watch uh, You've Got Mail on each you know, box of snookers. Uh, More on snookers on the Sports Center Top 10. Indeed. Meanwhile, we get a fun scene of where it's essentially two people hustling each other at the same time from different perspectives. Of where Ted's trying to get Rupert invested in the game so that they can make a bet. Rupert's trying to downplay how good he is at darts as well. They eventually set terms. Originally discussing the idea of 10,000 pounds, but apparently like, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Linguini Alfredo, too rich for Ted's blood. But the terms they reach are Rupert wins... Ted will let him pick the, pick the starting lineup for the last two games of the season. Ted wins. Rupert, regardless of marriage, issue, marriage situation and ownership rights, will not go anywhere near the owner's box as long as Rebecca's still in charge of the team. Rupert. Rebecca says, what are you doing? Ted, I believe some folks call it white knight, but I'm just going to go with my gut here. He brushes off Rebecca here in this regard, go back to the conversation. Rupert agrees, very content of his victory, and the two of them effectively reveal their trump cards. Rupert pulls out of his pocket his own custom collection of darts. Good lord. Uh, uh, the, the, the bar is shocked. Ted, meanwhile, goes full-on Princess Bride and reveals that he's, not, that he's actually left-handed and th- promptly throws a bullseye. And the game is afoot. Ooh, this is going to be a hoot. Indeed. Keely and Roy are, meanwhile, walking to dinner with Keely very much still focused on the fact that Roy is hiding something with respect to being busy. Primarily worried in her mind that he's dating other people and just doesn't want to look like an idiot when she later finds out. Roy, again, the grandmaster of cutting through things, reveals that no, he does yoga twice a week with women in their 60s who don't know him, and it's really good for his core, and normally it only takes an hour, but one of them them recently had a divorce and needed to talk about it and blow off some steam, so they had some drinks at uh, uh, G-A-Y, which is a a gay nightclub in Charing Cross. At 2 a.m., they had crepes and ballum with some drag queens, and that's why he didn't want to talk about it. And I love that that's all done in a single sentence with some very complicated punctuation to make it happen. I've got to say that the more we learn about Roy, the more I almost wish the entire show was about Roy. I mean, his uh, his niece and that whole thing, and now he's doing yoga with 60-year-old women and, like, being an emotional support uh, for one of them go- during a divorce at a gay gay bar, like oh god, Roy's backstory is fascinating. The easy joke to been done with Roy was that he was one note, that he was just a dumb jock, and they could have had lots of fun with that. The better joke they've gone with is that he's an incredibly complicated, multifaceted person with many interests that we're only slowly learning about. That's hilarious and an actually believable person. Keeley is immediately charmed, immediately pushes for a kiss is very concerned that the Roy might run away again, offers to grab his ass and let him grab hers. Roy, always cutting through things, interrupts her with a kiss of his own. Unfortunately, to somewhat spoil their moment, their first kiss on their first date, uh, 
in the sense that they're first kiss happening on their first day, you understand what I mean, there is paparazzi that are there present immediately snapping pictures. Roy confronts him, grabs his camera, basically says you're supposed to ask permission first, can I have this? Grabs his memory card and regardless of how the guy answered, walks away with it with pictures taken of their first date and their kiss on it. Notably, yes, yes, it is a memory card. Keely affectionately calls it a, or not affectionately, cutely calls it a camera card. <laughs> Everything she does is charming to me. Indeed. Notably, however, this member of the paparazzi is one we've seen before. Mm. This is the guy that Higgins hired to take pictures of Keely and Ted earlier in the season. I don't imagine that's going to be relevant later, do you? No, not at all. Clearly, that's not how this show works. Um, it's kind of like when you learn someone's name, you never see him again. Absolutely. Why would that ever come up? Uh, Rupert and Ted are in a close match. Adam wait a second. Has... Before wait a second. Before that scene ends, Roy, the ending uh, dialogue is Roy almost barking at Keeley, saying, "Come on, I'm cooking for you." So that's what he's doing. He's not even taking her to dinner. He's going to cook for her. Roy is man, the fucking man. Man of rounded talents. Uh, Rupert and Ted are in a very close match. They're both working their way down the three hundred the way you're doing darts, and Rupert's ahead. Appears to be pretty heavily ahead in the idea of the crowd almost to an insurmountable degree, given that Ted effectively going to have to finish this off in a single round to stand a chance. The crowd's for two triple 20s and a bullseye, which is almost, I mean, just almost impossible. Indeed. Well, it is notable that uh, Rupert did just throw, apparently, uh, three triple bullseyes to get the 180 that May calls out, so both these guys are really good at darts. Uh, The crowd is cheering for Rupert. To the point that Rebecca nearly bites the head off that one loudest of the the trio of fans. And this is where we get into the whole taunt, some of the taunting I mentioned earlier, where Rupert taunts both Ted and Rebecca, blaming her for bringing the hillbilly to their shores. Uh, Says that when he wins, he's going to put Sam back on defense where he belongs. And also Doesn't call him Sam. Calls calls him him Obisanya. He's not close with these people. They're units on his board. And also says that we knew that Rebecca was a bit randy, but never thought that she would fuck over an entire team. This one is enough that Ted actually interrupts with the basic implied threat of, hey, better manners when I'm holding a dart, I will hurt you. Yeah, that was the, that is that the only time we ever get threat of physical violence from Ted? I think it is. Other times have been kind of implied just from physical presence and some things that he got cut off by his son walking in the room. This one's just straight up and in a calm voice. He'll do this thing. Uh, as you said, Ted needs 170 to win. Good luck with that. The crowd assumes that that's obviously not going to happen. And then we get possibly Ted's best speech of the entire season. I can do it in its entirety or we can summarize it. What do you want to do here? Um. Yeah. Go ahead and do it. I mean, you look. You have established. You've already thrown out there that this is your favorite scene of the the entire season, right? And I'm sure that this is the this culminating uh, sort of thing from Ted is the reason. So yeah, go ahead and do it. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll start. We'll see. How, we'll see how, I'll, I'll do with it. Uh, you know, Rupert, guys underestimated underestimated me my entire life, and for years I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day I was driving my little boy to school and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there and it said, Be curious, not judgmental. I like that. Immediately scores a triple 20. Casually. So Triple 20 might be harder than bullseye. Might be harder than bullseye. Single hardest thing to throw in just in terms of amount of space, hence why it's it's higher priced. So I get back into my car and I'm driving to work. All of a sudden it hits me. All them fellows that used to belittle me, not a single one of them was curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out. So they judged everything, and they judged everyone. 
and I realized that they underestimated me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because if they were curious, they would have asked questions. You know, questions <laughs> like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? Have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> Another triple 20, effortlessly again. To which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday Ooh. afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 till I was 16 when he passed away. And I love the camera cuts to Rebecca right there. It does a couple times as he's doing this little speech. It's like, moment of realization slash concern slash feeling that she's having for Ted as he's going through this or feeling about himself a little bit in this conversation. And as he said this line, he says just barbecue sauce. Reference again to the things that bring you back to memories of home, memories of older, better times. And throws a bullseye for the win. The crowd erupts. Everyone's overjoyed. Everybody's screaming. Rupert is chastened. He's lost. Ted is gracious. Rupert and Bex leave with him saying that she's the delightful consolation prize. That's a hell of a line. And Rebecca is just in absolute bliss to see Rupert for once probably in his life get a certain measure of comeuppance. A certain measure of public shaming. Ted allows her just to complete the experience anymore by inviting her, despite her resistance, to buy the bar and herself become the center of attention as she deserves. She does. The three trio immediately run over to go buy more boots. They're the worst people. And the scene ends on a delightful note. God, I love that scene so much. Can you tell us why it's your favorite? Because, I mean, that's a, that's a big statement. Why is it your favorite scene of season one? It's so effectively emotional in terms of completing some of the arcs and misfortune we've had. Rupert's a despicable character, even if he's multifaceted in his own right and despicable. And so seeing Ted do this for someone, even under terms where he doesn't fully understand of how much she's screwing him over, in this just delightful build-up twist moment with this wonderful speech attached to it about his own really kind of reasons how he's developed as a person... It's just such wonderfully done character work being brought into an action of a scene. It's not not that the scene itself is necessarily magical in terms of how it plays out. It just represents such beautiful writing on this show. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Um, I, I do really like it. Um, I want to point out though that in that middle of that uh, monologue that Ted does, he does t- uh, drop a little detail that his dad passed away when he was sixteen years old. Yep. Which is something I'm assuming we're going to get more into later. Because that feels like a... Even the fact the camera focuses on Rebecca's face just shows how important a revelation that is. Uh, meanwhile, the team has practiced doing high-stepping, it looks like. Uh, or high knees. Uh, North Korea jaunting thing. Uh, to summarize as Ted does, Ted asks for a favor to which Sam agrees to anything, essentially. We'll die for you, coach. Uh, thank you, Sam, for that. Uh... And we see that as Rebecca's walking to her office and Higgins is apparently there to arrange things, Ted and the team have formed with their bodies curled up in Ted's case, high boss exclamation mark, and invite her to <laughs> yell it back at them. She does. They're what delighting in it. Rebecca clearly herself loves it too. She's honestly laughing and amused. And, and she does the thing. She says, hi, hi. like she actually plays yeah. along. It's great. Uh, do you think, question mark, do you think that they did that cute little high boss thing and that Rebecca actually fed into it, played into it, and seemed to enjoy it? Was that the final straw for Higgins? Because, I mean, obviously this has been building up, but do you do you think he had snapped before that moment or do you think he snapped after? I think it didn't help 
but I think he was giving her an opportunity here in the last conversation that he has with her to pull himself back from the decision he was already starting to reach. Yeah. I th okay. think it's a conversation that happens here that I think really pushes it over, just because it's another example of how much she's looking to screw over even the team for the sake of her own vengeance. Because as Higgins reveals, they've got a lot of old unsold seats, a lot for the last game of the season, because the team's not been doing very well. And so Becca just says, eh, open them up to the visitors. Which Higgins immediately says, it's Man City we're playing. They'll buy them up. There'll be more of their fans than ours in the stands. They'll dominate. We're on the brink of relegation. This could really hurt us. And okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Lesson here, uh, Uncle Lee, out to the kids. Uh, you have to take this one to heart. This is a very important lesson I'm throwing out there for everybody. If you are a fan of a sports team and you have season tickets, I understand you're not going to be able to go to every game. Some mm -hmm. of those games you're going to want to sell. You don't want to sell for practical reasons, right? You can't make it that night. Also for financial reasons, because it you know can pay for the price of the season tickets. I get all of that. Do not, if you're a real fan, do not, I repeat, do not sell your tickets to the enemy. I have seen, I'm a big UNC basketball fan. I have seen UNC season ticket holders, because the UNC Duke game is so big, sell their tickets to Duke fans, and it is unforgivable. It is, mm -hmm. how many level of hells is it for Dante? Six? It's the sixth level of hell, of phantom. <laughs> Do not sell your tickets to the enemy. That's the, that's the lesson. It is abject unacceptable. It is heinous when people do that. But apparently, Rebecca's willing to do that on a wholesale scale. For Higgins, this is, this is just, this is the last straw. This is the line in the sand. He basically just tells her to fuck off. That what you're doing to desperately hurt Rupert, because she even says just how much that would hurt Rupert to see that happen. It's not going to take away your pain. Constantly punishing him has no practical value to you in this regard. Rebecca lashes out at Higgins. The more honest conversations the two of them really had all season, that where were these morals when you were basically hiding things from me about Rupert? When we were going out to lunch together so that he could have sex in our house. I thought we were friends. That's a hell of a line I wasn't expecting to see her say that. But me you too. never... But you never did the right thing then, and I think she even just calls him a pussy or something along those lines. Higgins, adult that he is, immediately admits it, that he regrets it, that he carries it around with him, and that he deserves that. He should have been braver. He's sorry. Becca looks honestly shocked to see, you know, someone just say that to her and seek, you know, legitimate feelings of remorse. But Higgins says, for the last time, stop. He's begging her. He's practically on his knees here. He doesn't want to have to do what he feels like he's got his back against the wall to do. She rebuffs him, so he quits. He walks out the door. She calls after him that you'll just come groveling back. I know how this works. Diggins closes the door, and she slumps back in her chair, clearly uncertain with her position in a way that she hasn't really felt this season. There's an immediate knock. She gets a triumphant like, look. Pause, mm -hmm. Let's pause before Keeley comes in. I want to point out a couple things from this scene. The first is I love to point out the um, continuity, right? Um, when they when there's continuity in the show, yeah. we have it here, right? Because we had a scene episodes ago where Keeley Higgins and Rebecca were in the room. Rebecca and Keeley were talking. Keeley playfully tells Rebecca to fuck off, and Higgins makes a joke. Can you imagine what would happen if I told you to fuck off? Yes. And in this reference. scene, he actually snaps and says, "Oh, fuck off." So yeah. I love the I love the continuity there. I also want to point out that um, in previous episodes, Rebecca has made this comment to Higgins. Well, what, yeah, you were lying to me about Rupert, and I dismissed it. I was like, "Well, what do you what do you expect him to do? Right? Rupert was the boss. I mean, come on, give him a break. Oh, you can't be mad at him about this." 
But when Rebecca explains exactly how it went down here, it's way more affecting than I thought it would be. And I found I'm still on Higgins' side here, but I, I got like up to about forty percent for Rebecca yeah. because the idea that they were going to one-on-one -on -one lunches and that I mean Rebecca was not owning the team; she was not a part of this apparatus. He was just, I guess, being her friend, like just to create this guy's I don't know I found that I found that being way more affecting uh and I I was on team Rebecca a lot more and it actually says a lot about the actress too I mean the writing's good but the way the actress like slips into like this really hurt thing I wasn't expecting I thought it was really mm -hmm. good no it's, it's beautifully done because I'd always assumed that Higgins was just an employee and that he was just kind of like yeah. Rupert's assistant and so I I understood that she felt well. She understood the, her feelings of anger towards him, but I didn't really understand the depth of it until the scene of like, no, 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 no. She really saw him as a friend, somebody that she could talk to and hang out with. So this is a very personal betrayal that he engaged in. He clearly is. It also explains the level of guilt that he feels for it too, because he betrayed a friend when it comes to this for the sake of his employment, I guess. Um, yep. Again, Rebecca thinks it's Higgins coming back to grovel right away and gets this really triumphal look on her face, but no, 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 it's Keeley. And, my friend, what does Keeley have in her hand? The camera card. <laughs> she Thank you. Wanted to hear you say it again. Got a, got a picture off the camera card. Uh, and it is a picture of Ted and Keeley by the paparazzi earlier in the season. They apparently went and confronted the paparazzi after they saw that. Confronted in the sense that I'm guessing Roy threatened to beat the ever-loving shit out of him. And they find out that he was hired by Rebecca. So, Keeley's in on the plot. She knows what Rebecca's doing. And she threatens that, unless, she comes unless Rebecca comes clean to Ted right away, Keeley will do it for her. Keeley leaves. Diamond Dogs by David Bowie plays. And the episode ends. There we go. That's the recap. Another bang-up job here from Spencer for episode eight. Spencer, leading us through the recap point by point of the episode. Spencer, I thought this was a really good episode. I thought it was a... It's, it's an episode to me that, like, I, you know, pretty much every series can have high points, right? Mm -hmm. It can have, like, an episode where it's like, okay, they really put a lot into it, either through the writing or through the money, right, and the production value. This is one, obviously, that you're not going to say is your, like anybody's going to say is their favorite right it doesn't necessarily stand out but it does show a baseline of quality for the show so when i'm trying to i'm, I'm trying to explain to someone just how good a show this is this might actually be the perfect episode to do it because it shows it shows when they're really just trying to get through the season get through plot points and nothing spectacular happens it's not like they're at a karaoke bar they're not you know out at a gala or something there's still this large this baseline of quality that's still really good it's a wonderful episode. I really love what they did with the relationship work in this episode because all of them are so believable and so mature and so properly played out the way he would want people to actually talk and discuss their relationship problems, be it between lovers or new relationships forming or just even between friends discussing when they hurt each other. It's great. I loved it. Even if it feels in many ways like a setup episode for where things are going to wrap up at the end of the season, it was still a delight to watch. I agree with you. This may be one of the quintessential Ted Lasso episodes, even if the majority of the Tedisms we get are utterly insufferable puns on milk. Mm. Yeah, they are pretty cheesy. Um, I would like to say... I'm done. I'm uh, done. I've broken the <laughs> podcast ends here. <laughs> Keep think, going. All right. I think we can go to train wreck of the episode. Who is the train wreck of the episode? I've got my idea. I'm interested in yours, Spencer. Who do you think? I think based on what events happened at the end, 
Rebecca is in some ways more alone than she even was at the start of this season by the end of this episode. I, I think agree. She, Rebecca, she, train wreck of the episode. Absolutely. She's, she's lost Higgins, who she always thought would be her toady. Her friend that she's developed in Keeley is now on the rocks. Her issues with Ted are now being confronted, and that he just did an incredible gesture for her, and she's now confronted by the fact that she's horribly stabbing him in the back. She's screwing over the team in a way that all was basically presented and laid bold to all of the fan base, too, by Rupert. This is not a great run for Rebecca, even though she has one of her greatest moments in terms of just snub, shoving it in Rupert's face. Yeah, I completely agree. Rebecca Trainwreck of the episode. I think she's gotten more Trainwreck of the episodes than anyone. Um, and that's probably justified because she's kind of a hot mess. I mean, she doesn't even really know where she's at, right? Because one minute she's like, yeah, sell all the tickets to the enemy. That'll get Rupert. But like 20 seconds before that, she was like having fun with the guys cutting up. So I don't think she even really knows where she's at. I think it's part of the way that they've tried to make her a more sympathetic villain for the series is that by showing what a rough state that she's in, by showing how many rough moments she had, show how she's being emotionally pulled in different directions, it helps not justify but at least explain her motivations for why she's doing what are the legitimately cruel and wrong things she is over the course of the season. Yeah, completely agree. Are you ready to go to the Sports Center top ten? Uh, do you have your t- your five examples ready? Yep, five. Five on the nose and only five. Not five. Spencer, do you want to go first? Uh, I'll just say this, I've said before, relationships. Relationships portrayed between adults acting mature. I can't remember the last time I've seen that on television and have it not just be played out as utterly kind of like lifetime giving advice to kids maltzy. This was both realistic and also mature in a way I don't see on sitcoms much at all. It was a delight to see. So a couple of the guys say that the product that they love the most, if they were going to endorse something, is Air Jordans. Air Jordans is a brand of shoes by Nike Corporation. So Jordan brand is actually an offshoot of Nike Corporation. The original pair was made in 1984 for Michael Jordan, who was a rookie at the time. Little known fact, they were not released to the public until the following year. So Michael Jordan debuted them on the basketball court, the Jordan 1s. You couldn't get them until May 1st, 1985. We're now up to Air Jordan 36s. So there's been every year on the year a new Air Jordan. We're up to Air Jordan 36 right now in the year 2021. And Lee's favorite are the Air Jordan 4s in University Blue. I don't have a pair, so if anybody wants to hook up their favorite podcast host, you can send me over a pair of Air Jordan 4s in University Blue. Question from sheer ignorance here. How far back do we have to go in terms of the recent models of Air Jordans before they become properly collectible? Or are they just collectible the moment they come out? So it's it's kind of hard, right? Because they keep making them. Um, so you could get, like, let's say you got the Air Jordan 2s in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had the original box and you had the original shoes. Yeah, they, uh, yeah, fuck yeah, they'd be collector's items. They'd be worth a lot of money. But Jordan, keeps, the Air Jordan Corporation keeps making the 2s. So you can mm-hmm. go buy the 2s, like... You know, at some like at some point in the next couple of years. I mean, they don't they don't make them like consistently, right? So sure. they'll do like May to April. They'll do the twos and the sixes and the nineteens and the twenty ones, right? And then they'll switch it up. So you can continually get these shoes. But yeah, if you got the original, it's almost kind of like books, right? If you got the first edition of a very popular uh, book, then yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a collector's item, even though that book is still selling, you know, in trade paperback or whatever. Uh, one for me. Isaac's absolute certainty and what he wants to endorse. I love that there's not a second thought. I love that there's no double guessing. I love that there's no element of being talked out of it. The man loves Rolos. 
He wants to endorse Rolos, and he won't hear another word about it. That is a level of certainty and confidence in your life goals and life outlook that I lack and I admire. Ted references the dodecahedron. Dodecahedron is any polyhedron with 12 flat faces. The most familiar dodecahedron is the regular dodecahedron. Go figure. Uh, and it has regular pentagons as faces. There you go. Interesting. How many times at this point have we had Ted reference his mother-in-law in some capacity or some form? It's more. It's been more. It's been a couple times at this point, right? It's three. It's a creepy relationship. We need to like. We need to cast his mother-in-law. Like we need to like have oh, like no. uh, like Kathy Bates show up as Ted's <laughs> mother-in-law in season two. That would be no. Wild. It's at this point she's gonna be like Maris from Frasier. They've said too much. We can't actually depict her anymore. They're just gonna keep talking about her in reference. Um. um next one. Uh, I think I think this is the last one for me. I just really actually like seeing darts on screen. I really enjoyed darts a lot when I was when I was a kid growing up. We had a dart board in my house. And so seeing the two of them playing against each other and both be some mix of Paul Newman the Hustler versus, you know, Inigo Matoy and Princess Bride. Wonderful to Ooh. see it. W- wonderful to see it. Great moment of sport in this show. Sweet references, bro. Hey, um, are you good at darts? I It's been a while since I've played. Maybe like, you know, Ted's thing since I was 16 or whatever else. But I was decent back in the day. We're gonna see each other in a couple of weeks. We need to play some darts. We'll make a. We'll make maybe we'll make a, a, a nice little wager on it or something. Um, I'm not. I'm right, not so betting my, ten thousand pounds. I'm not doing it. No, not quite that. But we'll we'll figure something out. Um, next one is uh, our homeboy Nate. One of our favorite characters does say uh, in talking about Keeley to be liked by someone like that must be wonderful. Now, Ted then goes shout out Gershwin Brothers. Why does he say shout out Gershwin Brothers? Well, they uh, wrote a song called Swonderful, S apostrophe wonderful. It's a 1927 song composed by George Gershwin. That's the OG. That's the guy you know, right? That's the that's the um, Michael Jackson, everybody else is Tito. Mm-hmm. Written by his sister, Ira Gershwin, I believe. Um, it was introduced, or no, it's his brother, Ira Gershwin. It was introduced in the Broadway musical Funny Face. Funny Face, written by Adela Stare and Alan Kearns. Adela Stare was the older brother of Fred Astaire. Did not know um, that. Which, which many people say I resemble. So uh, there you go. Hadn't thought about it before, but yeah, you kind of do. Huh. Yeah. I just realized something. Uh, um, okay. Go ahead. Uh, I think that's 30 for us now. Do you have any more? Um, yeah, 31 and 32. 31, the pool game snooker. Um, Spencer, do you know what the pool game Snooker is? No, I really don't. I just assumed it was another name for pool. It's obnoxiously complicated. It's a normal pool table with six pockets. And you use a cue stick, obviously, to strike the white cue ball to pocket the other 21 Snooker balls in correct sequence, accumulating points for each pocket. Now, first you have to hit a red ball. That's one point. The red ball's got to go in. And then, once the red ball goes in, you, you know, using the cue ball. And the next one, then you can hit a colored ball with the correct number in sequence and ascending order. So let's say you go first. You hit the red ball in, boom, you got one point. Then you hit the one ball in and you get one point, right? Let's okay. say it's later on, later on in the turns, you hit another red ball in and you hit, like, say, the eight ball in. Then you got nine points for that turn, right? That's how okay. you do it. And you accumulate the points. Eventually, because of the number of balls, you're going to run out of red balls while you still have six of the numerical colored balls, and then you knock those in in ascending order, however they, however the chips have fallen, and then you count the points up in the end. I go through this convoluted, convoluted expo- huh. uh, explanation to tell you that 
Britain does a lot of really good things, right? They're really mm-hmm. good at soccer. Their tea is bomb. It's fucking great. They suck at making pool games. Like, that sucks. <laughs> like, eight ball is so much better. Nine ball's better. This crap is terrible. Don't play snooker. I, another game I had growing up, I had a pool table in my basement. My mom was really good at pool, so that was another fun moment of growing up, too, in sport. Uh, Walt Whitman is quoted as saying, be curious, not judgmental. This is consistently attributed to Walt Whitman. It has no source. He probably said it, but it's not, like, from a poem or anything. So, <laughs> he, yeah, was, he was walking down the street after the Civil War, uttered it to somebody at a bar, and they wrote it down. It's a great story. Finally, the episode ends with a banger of a song, Diamond Dogs, by my man David Bowie. Um, this is off the album Diamond Dogs. His eighth studio named. album, <clears throat> released on May 24th, 1974. The album was recorded after his backing band, The Spiders, disbanded. It was a big time in Bowie's life. And it's actually the first album in which he played all of the guitar on. Really? So yeah. Yeah. Yep. Before then, his uh, his band, The Spiders, played uh, all of the all the musical instruments he just sang. From then on, he played the guitar on his albums. Well, we, we've done a solid 40 on our Sports Center Top 10. I think we're ready to go on to advice and philosophy now. Had a lot of little tidbits from this episode. Yeah, let's finish this up with Ted's life lessons of the episode. Here you go, Spencer. You ready for him? I am. Don't let someone's past affect their future oh, with you. God, it's such good advice. It's such hard advice, but it's such good advice. If you're going to have a, create a future with someone, you can't let their past get in the way. And I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to this, right? If they fucking killed, murdered, raped somebody. I mean, like, obviously. But, like... If they dated somebody you didn't like, or if they said something to you that you didn't like, or something like that, you got to drop that crap if you're going to create a future with somebody. The second Ted's life lessons, always value the advice of a good friend or good friends. Uh, ooh, the Diamond Dogs. Number three, always be kind to your boss. Hmm. Um, that's just practical. That, yeah, that, that is that isn't even really like that, a feel good one. It's just be nice to your boss. That's, so, that's solid finally, self-serving advice right there. <laughs> finally, the... Best advice Rebecca could ever get. This Rebecca needs this every single episode. Let's drill it into her brain. Let's tattoo it on mm-hmm. her arm so she mm-hmm. doesn't forget it. Mm-hmm. You can't make yourself feel better by hurting other people. It will never, yeah. ever make you feel good in the long run. Yeah. If you think if you're hurt and you want to feel better and you think hurting someone else is gonna make that hurt go away, it will not, I promise you. It will not. There you go. Ted's life lessons of the episode. And her way of hurting one person also is to effectively napalm an entire jungle. There's so much collateral damage she's inflicting that she's really not thought about yet. And I think Keeley finally confronting her about Ted's going to play a key role in bringing that home to roost. Absolutely agree. There you go. That's the end of our segments here for Episode 8, Diamond Dog. Spencer, any concluding thoughts before we wrap up? I am looking so much forward to talking about the last two episodes with you as we get into Season 2. I am too. We're setting up for the big Rebecca reveal. Rebecca's going to have to come clean to Ted one way or the other. Keely is going to make her do it. I think we're prepping for that for the next episode. So that we will cover in our coverage of episode nine here on the Lasso Lowdown. We are really looking forward to season two, folks. If you are um, enjoying our coverage of season one, we are uh, really excited to do season two with you. So make sure you come back after the debut of episode one of Ted Lasso season two on July 23rd. We'll be here with you with a new episode on July 24th or 5th. In the meantime, we will be out 
with episode 9 and 10 of our season 1 coverage. We really appreciate you listening. If you're enjoying this pod, please go to your favorite podcast platform, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. That stuff really helps, and it boosts my ego every time I see a 5-star review, so I really appreciate that. Please do it. And if you like hearing me and Spencer talk writ large, just go to your favorite podcast platform, type in Mangum Talks, and you'll see a plethora of podcasts that we do. We do movie reviews we do tv reviews we do other television shows we do a general talk show called mangum talks just type in mangum talks all this podcast will come up and they are a lot of fun we really enjoy doing them thank you again for listening we will be back with you in just a couple days with our review of episode nine until then see you